according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here once again for the purpose of growth. Join me, if you would, in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1. We're approaching the last verses of this uh, chapter. Getting ready to move on into chapter 2. Not too many more classes from now. We'll get our first shot at the second uh, second chapter. But we're still dealing with verses 23 and following and dealing with the uh, rejection of the Holy Spirit, dealing with the humility required to receive rebuke and correction and uh, the issues here. As it says uh, in verse 22, how long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded and scoffers delight themselves in scoffing and fools hate knowledge? How long do you stay an infant? How long do you stay a pethy or a, uh, a naive one? In the church age, how long do you stay a babe in Christ? When do you become an adolescent? When do you become mature? When you look at the age levels in First, uh, first John, for example, young men and, and fathers, uh, how long do we stay in, in our childhood? Well, turn to my reproof. That's, uh, that's a good clue. If you uh, won't accept a reproof, then you're going to stay infantile quite a long time. All right, because growing up requires that kind of discipline. It requires the uh, hand of God upon you as the word of God goes, uh, goes forth. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. Human rejection of the Word of God is fundamentally a, a human rejection of God the Holy Spirit who teaches the Word of God to each one of us. And uh, last week we took the time to work our way through. I'll review it just quickly this morning and then we'll uh, gain new ground as we move forward. But we have the human rejection of the Holy Spirit that the New Testament talks about in terms of grieving, quenching, and resisting the Holy Spirit. And uh, the full trinity, I think, we can find here as we related across. All right, before we get started, let's ask God the Father to humble us that we might not uh, fulfill the verses that we're studying. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Thank you for these brothers and sisters here today that have assembled to receive instruction. And Father, also as we've learned, uh, folks listening on the website from uh, distances that they can't travel here, but they are taking part, and we thank you for that as well. Father, in all things, humble us, open our eyes to the truth, that we might have a better understanding of you, Father, through the truth of your word. Transform us, Father, that we might not be conformed to this world, but transform us by the renewing of our mind. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All righty, we are in the final point of study for this chapter, which is main point five, wisdom is a matter of public life. Wisdom is a matter of public life. We may be instilled in the home, uh, these uh, principles may be taught in the home, but they are manifest on the street. <clears throat> Subpoint A, values are nurtured in the home, but they are manifest on the streets. And it's pretty clear, not only this uh, wisdom, the wisdom from above, you can tell if a young person has been grounded in Scripture. It doesn't take long. You understand, here's a believer. Here's someone that has a foundation in the Word. Here's someone that's been brought up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. 
And then the contrary. You can tell for folks that have been saturated with the cosmos wisdom, the wisdom from below, the wisdom that is earthly, natural, demonic. If they are steeped in the things of this world, then they're conformed to this world. And it's pretty self-evident what is being nurtured in the home by what is being manifest on the streets. And uh, the different applications there. All right, wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. And there's a pretty comprehensive description here between the square, the noisy streets, the gates, uh, the different uh, districts, if you will, or neighborhoods, the different parts of any uh, city arrangement, including the marketplace, the court uh, system, and so forth. So point B, love, delight, and hate is a twisted trinity for the scoffing fools who prolong their pethy. They prolong their naivete. You know, there is a blessing to be pethy, but the blessing of being pethy is that God keeps you alive long enough to grow out of that. (laughs) And uh, the uh, aspects there, if you prolong the pethy status, then you will go from simple-minded to scoffers to fools. And uh, we're introduced here to the different forms of fools that we're going to see again and again and again throughout the book of Proverbs. 49 uses of the kaseel throughout the book of Proverbs, beginning with uh, this verse right here, as fools hate knowledge. Um, 19 uses of the evil, look kind of like evil, the evil in uh, Proverbs, beginning with Proverbs 1.7, the uh, evil fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then uh, the Nabal fool. Uh, only three times in Proverbs, 18 altogether in the Old Testament, the Nabal that we're familiar with because of the, the name Nabal, Nabal and Abigail and the illustration there that we studied long, long time ago in the Life of David series when uh, David encountered Nabal, who was rightly named. He was a fool, but his wife Abigail had some discernment and some, had some uh, grace to uh, try to remedy the ugly circumstance there that uh, Nabal had gotten himself into. Three uses of Nabal in the book of Proverbs, uh, twice in chapter 17 and once in verse 30. So we're not going to take the time at this juncture to uh, go into the fool. We're going to see them unfold all the times that they unfold uh, chapter by chapter through this book. Point C now, the big impact from last week. The Spirit of God has always been a teaching influence. Uh, This is something I I find is largely uh, a misconception uh, because folks, um, it's it's natural in the church age, we just kind of assume, well, this is how things have always been. Uh, Because we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we tend to think that that's what it takes to learn the Word of God. And then, but you don't stop to think, well, wait a minute, if in the Old Testament, if they didn't have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, how did they learn the Word of God? You know, you assume that they must have learned the Word of God somehow. <laughs> Clearly, David learned the Word of God. The psalmist in Psalm 119 learned the Word of God. Job learned the Word of God. All these Old Testament believers learned the Word of God. And they didn't have the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit to do so. So we want to understand that the Holy Spirit is the teacher, but that's not connected. It's, it's trying to separate it from his permanent indwelling ministry. All right, because he's got other ministries as well. He baptizes us. He convicts the world. The Holy Spirit does a tremendous amount of things. If you do a comprehensive study on pneumatology, you'll see all the different things the Holy Spirit is involved with, and that includes teaching. The Spirit of God has always been a teaching influence. 
But as a teaching influence, the teaching influence is subject to human refusal, inattention, and neglect. Teaching, where you are communicating information, is an active verb. Teaching is an active activity. But so too is learning an active opportunity. And there's a difference between learning and being taught. It's a huge difference. And Scripture bears this out from the the Greek vocabulary to the Hebrew vocabulary to anything you want to look at. Teaching is an active activity. And learning is an active activity. Right? The verb teach is didasko. Right now I am didaskoing. If I can add ing on the end of a Greek verb. But uh, (laughs) I am didaskoing right now. And here's the thing. You are learning right now, ideally, hopefully. You are learning. And that's a different verb. Okay? The verb is manthano, to learn. Or mathetes, to be a disciple, right? The noun mathetes is a disciple. comes from the verb manthano, to learn. And it's very important that we realize learn is a different verb than teach. Okay? Learn and teach. And they're both active. I'm actively teaching. You're actively learning. It's not a passive experience. Okay? And we can express teach in a passive voice. I am teaching. You are being taught. We're not denying that's a reality. If I'm teaching and you're being taught, okay, that, that does happen. But that's just simply the consequence of, of what I'm doing. I'm teaching. You're being taught. But just because you're being taught doesn't mean you're learning. Understand? There's a lot of people that are taught for a long, long time that never learn. Because it's not a passive voice to just be taught. Okay, I'm just going to soak it up because I happen to be sitting in a room when words were being spoken. Well, wait a minute. Are you actively learning? Are you studying to show yourself approved? Are you diligent to present yourself approved? So, uh, in any event, I think these, uh, these are vital. And so, because learning is active, because learning is a, an active expectation for believers, it has to be volitionally done. You have to volitionally learn. You have to decide. You have to choose. Today, I'm going to learn something. Today, I'm going to pay attention. Today, I'm going to humble myself so that I can learn something. And not just simply assume, well, it'll just rub off. It'll happen. I'll soak it in through osmosis or some kind of passive thing. All right? You know, the, the effectiveness of that is like shoving a Bible under your pillow and hoping that while you're sleeping at night, you'll wake up in the morning and somehow Bible verses will just filter in. Okay? All right. Important to note that the teaching role of the Holy Spirit is independent of the church reality for the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You do not have to have the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit in order for the Holy Spirit to teach you, as Old Testament believers illustrate. All right. Human refusal, inattention, and neglect. We got all three here. We have the you refused, Proverbs 1, 24a. And I'm not going to reteach everything we taught last week, but I hope uh, we've taken the time to uh, review these issues to look at Acts 7:51 to see the context of Stephen's sermon when Stephen was put to death there in Acts chapter 7 and he told them flat out he said you are always resisting the holy spirit you are always resisting the holy spirit and i find this quite useful i find this quite um because uh, the holy spirit inspired this and put it into scripture 
in Acts 7.51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, so you don't hear because you don't want to hear. Your heart doesn't want to receive, so your ears don't listen. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. They're not the first generation to do this, okay? All, you know, unbelievers will always resist, and carnal believers will always resist everything the Holy Spirit has to say. That's why it says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit says to the local churches. You have to volitionally listen and not resist. Anyway, it's an interesting verse. Uh, it's good to bookmark it. It's good to have it on hand, always resisting, particularly if you encounter folks whose uh, theology includes a component that they say is irresistible. All right, If they say, God is sovereign, God cannot be resisted. Who are you, O puny human? You don't have the capacity to resist God. Well, these guys did, and their fathers did, and it seems to be rather common. If, uh, if the Holy Spirit is irresistible, then why am I commanded to hear what the Holy Spirit says to the churches? Okay, and Seven times I'm commanded to hear what the Holy Spirit says to the churches. Seems to me like an imperative repeated seven times. Um, I should be paying attention to that, and I should follow the imperative to hear. All right, so refusal to hear, resisting the Holy Spirit. The inattention that's spoken of, I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. See, God is so faithful, he doesn't just stop when we, when we don't listen. When we don't listen, he actually continues. He doesn't just stop and give up and say, oh, well, they're not listening. I'll, I'll just let them go. No. He will then follow up by stretching out his hand. He stretches out his hand. As it says in uh, Proverbs uh, one twenty four. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. So now he's got an outstretched hand, which means now he's at work. He's, he's manipulating things, circumstances in our life. He's bringing about conditions and circumstances and, and aspects that had we listened to what he said the first time, maybe these things wouldn't be coming around. But because we didn't listen, because we resisted him, now his hand is stretched out. Now we're dealing with his hand upon us. And we're dealing with these circumstances here. Are we paying attention yet? The, the stretched out hand is, is an attention getter. It's designed to get our attention. And when we don't, when he doesn't get our attention, now we're quenching the Holy Spirit as per 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Now we are deliberately, we're, we're uh, closing our eyes, our hands are over our ears, we're going, nah, 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 not, not listening, not listening, not listening, and quenching the light of the Holy Spirit, like putting a torch in a bucket of water. And uh, how's it going to shine now if you just dunked the torch under the, in the bucket of water? You just quenched the Holy Spirit. And then finally, neglect. You neglected all my counsel. You neglected all my counsel. And you reach the point of neglect in terms of grieving the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4.30, whereby now you're just totally at odds with the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. Now you're operating by means of the flesh. You're operating to the, to the grief of the Holy Spirit. Remember, these are in opposition to one another. Um, if you're not familiar with Galatians 5, you ought to be, and uh, we will be shortly teaching Galatians 5, probably a year from now. Let's see, we got chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then 4, 5, 6. Galatians will be a two-year study. Anyway, but they are in opposition to one another. Think of the, uh, the flesh within you as this living, thinking, breathing, nasty thing, 
and the Holy Spirit within you is a living, breathing, thinking, non-nasty, beautiful thing, okay? And they are competing within you. And this is where the battlefield rages. Galatians 5.16, I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, by means of the Spirit, the instrumentality of God the Holy Spirit empowering your walk. As you do so, you never, will, never, can, never will fulfill the desire of the flesh. It's impossible. Just as Christ, it was possible for him not to sin. It was as man, as God, he was, it was impossible for him to sin, so too with us. Our two natures, the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling us, the flesh still within us, which one are we going to obey? If we walk by the Spirit, it is possible that we'll never sin again, ever, so long as we walk by means of the Holy Spirit. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. Notice, the flesh is alive. It has a desire. It has a will. It's not just an impersonal, unthinking, undesiring thing. It has a desire. It has a, a will, a thelema. It has a fellow. It wills. And so does the Holy Spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to, what, to one another. So you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, and notice that's parallel to walking by means of, led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You don't have to use this list of do's and don'ts to gauge your spirituality. You're being led by the Spirit. All right, so the point of grieving the Holy Spirit then, as as per Ephesians 4.30, you have uh, resisted the Holy Spirit, you have quenched the Holy Spirit, now you are grieving the Holy Spirit because you are neglecting His counsel. Again, to go back to the terminology of Proverbs 1, you neglected all my counsel. Instead, you're, you're listening to the counsel of your flesh, listening to the counsel of the no good thing that dwells within you, your sin nature. Your sin nature says, hey, uh, why don't, you, why don't you do this? That'd be fun. And you go, yep, I want to do that. That sounds fun. Yep, I want to do that. And yeah, twist my arm, right? You're like uh, Abraham when Sarah says, here, here's my handmaid. Uh, you can have a baby with her. And Abraham says, yep, that looks fun, right? She didn't really twist his arm all that hard, did, he, did she? Or uh, Rachel and Leah giving their handmaids to Jacob and uh, got no fight from him, okay? Here's her sin nature. She says, I want to do this. And if you're not walking by means of the Spirit, yep, that sounds fun. Because you are a slave to the one you submit to. You are not your own. Let's understand this. You are a slave to the one you submit to. Now, the Spirit of God has always been a teaching influence, subject to, as we've seen, subject to human refusal, inattention, and neglect. God does not force you to learn what he's teaching you. When you fail, he will remedy that. He will discipline you. He will stretch out his hand. If you continue to fail, he's got other ways to teach you. <laughs> you can learn the easy way or you can learn the hard way. That's why I love the example of Jonah. He never forced Jonah to go to Nineveh. But uh, there's Jonah puked up on the beach with, with fish uh, vomit all over him. And, you know... Again, the imperative says, go to Nineveh, go to Nineveh. No compulsion, but Jonah reached the point that he said, I don't want to face further consequences of disobedience. At, at a certain point, you say, all right, disobey, disobey, disobey. Every time there's consequences, 
and the consequences get worse, the consequences get harder, and you reach a point where you're saying, I don't want to know what the next step's going to be. And, uh, but I know how to not find out, <laughs> okay? I can repent right here, right now, and get back in the plan of God. Because I'm afraid of what the next step might be. All right. So, point uh, D now. Turning to the Holy Spirit's reproof is a volitional desire. A volitional desire and decision to accept His love. And as long as we understand that His love is His disciplined love, that He scourges every son whom He receives, that He disciplines us because He loves us. I should have added some Hebrews references here to this slide. Turning to the Holy Spirit's reproof is a volitional desire. That's why in the book of James it says, with humility receive the Word of God implanted. You have to choose to do this. And it won't be easy. And it won't be fun. But it's necessary to be under the hand of God's discipline, be under the hand of God's reproof. I tell you, if you're under the Word of God, the Word of God will reprove you. It says, preach the Word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all patience and instruction. And most believers don't want that. They want their ears tickled. They won't, they won't abide for that in the end times, such as the day and age in which we live. All right, Proverbs 1. Notice, Turn to my reproof. Which way do you face? And who chooses which way you face? All right, turn. I love the, the Hebrew shuv and different components to this. You know, turning does not tell you, I mean, turning is itself a neutral term. It could be good, it could be bad. If you turn from God to idols, that's bad. We call that apostasy. If you turn from idols to God, that's good. We call that uh, repentance, or we call that a change of thinking, or we call that turning to God from idols. All right? Um, the turning activity itself is just a turning activity. It's good or bad depending upon which, what you turn from and what you turn to. Make sense? It's the same verb, it's the same shub or shuv. Uh, David had a son named Shobab. Okay, which I kind of like. It's part of my quest to find Bob in the Bible. Shobab is uh, one of David's sons, and it's, it comes from the verb shuv. And it means renegade, right? Somebody that turned back. Okay? Or maybe he turned to God from idols. And so we shouldn't render Shobab as renegade. We should call Shobab something good. Anyway. Um, shuv means to turn. And you choose which way you turn. You choose what your mind is going to dwell on. You choose what you're going to be looking at. Turn to my reproof. Now, if you're carnal, you don't want to do that. I don't want to look at that. Right? The light shone in the darkness and the light couldn't comprehend it. The light didn't want to comprehend it. Jesus Christ came and they, the men hated the light. They loved darkness and hated the light. That's why turning to reproof requires humility. You have to say, Lord, I need this. I want this. I don't just want a bunch of ear-tickling, flattering messages that say, yeah, I'm a good person. I'm great. I'm good. I'm what, what, a bunch of lies. Okay? I know I got, a, I got growth in front of me. I know I got changes to make. I know there's stuff that God's working on. He said, and it's not a short list. Okay? There's a lot that he's got to work on. Turn to my reproof. It's a volitional imperative. This is, this is, this is a command like uh, he that has an ear, let him hear. That's a command. 
Verse uh, 25, you neglected my counsel. Notice, you did not want my reproof. You did not want my reproof. That's why I say it's a desire and a decision. Or it's a decision and a desire. Put it in whatever order you want. Okay? To will and to do. A desire and a decision. You did not want my reproof. Do you want it? I want it. I want Scripture to, to whoop me every day. I want, I want the Holy Spirit every day to be at work in me. What, what day would I not want Him to be at work in me? Is there a day that I, I don't want to be under reproof? I don't want to be under teaching? I don't want to be led by the Spirit? I don't want to be walking by means of the Spirit? If I do not want discipline, then I, what, what do I want? I want to be an illegitimate child, not claimed by my father? That's the question in Hebrews. What son is there who is without discipline? The illegitimate son, the one that's not acknowledged, the one that's not loved. So the idea of wanting, wanting. And this, by the way, uh, in verse 25 where he says, you did not want my reproof, this speaks to the volition, that speaks to the desire, to the consent. All right, remember... uh, Earlier when we said, uh, do not consent, when they, when they, if sinners entice you, in verse 10, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. You remember that? That's the same verb. That's the same term. You did not want my reproof. You did not consent to my reproof. Well, I want to consent to his reproof. Sure, sign me up. <laughs> I thank God for it every day. You know, growing up, I remember, I don't, public schools probably don't even do this anymore, I don't know, but when I was in the public schools, um, at the start of every school year, they would send home uh, consent forms. And basically it was consent forms for spanking, right? And, and it was, it was to, the school would get consent from the parents, uh, permission to spank the, the disobedient children in the school, all right? And of course, there were kids, classmates, whose parents would not sign the form or would check the no box and say, no, you're not spanking my kid. My parents, of course, checked the yes box and then wrote in, you know, as much as you want or as much as you need to or, you know, start with that and move up from there if that doesn't do it. My, my parents were very happy to sign the consent box for discipline. Kind of what we're dealing with here. You, you neglected all my counsel and did not want, did not consent, did not desire my reproof. It's a humility test to what you want, what you desire, what you consent to. Finally, in Proverbs uh, verse 30, they would not accept my counsel. Ooh, now I'm double thinking myself. That might be the verb from consent in verse 10. I'll have to double check that. One of those is the term that we have in verse 10 for consent. They would not accept my counsel, and they spurned all my reproof. So the, all these verses are saying basically the same thing. If, you, if you're going to let the Holy Spirit teach you, well, there's going to be some things that won't be pleasant to listen to, but the truth hurts, so deal with it, okay? Accept it. Thank God for it. It'll come back again in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Let's take a look at that, preview of what we'll deal with in that chapter. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Oh, look at that. 
I wonder where the author of Hebrews got that idea. <laughs> he ripped it off out of Proverbs. Okay, there it is. Do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. Fundamentally, as you do that, you, you become an imitator of Satan. Look at his response to his fall and all the loathing that he has for the God who has judged him for his sin. Whom the Lord loves, he reproves. He's doing it because he loves you. My, my parents told me that. I told my kids that. I think, uh, you know, you say this, you know, I'm doing this because I love you. <laughs> my dad tells a story about his mom, my grandmother, who would spank him something fierce. And then he'd cry and say, you don't love me. And she, that, that said it made it even worse. How dare you say I don't love you? Let me show you how much I love you and thank him even more. Okay? Because she loved him. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights, because he loves him enough to not want him to go down the path that he's on. He delights in that son. Chapter 12 and verse 1. Proverbs 12, 1. Whoever loves discipline, this is the disciplined instruction, the Musar instruction in Proverbs. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. <laughs> Uh, okay, so name-calling, it's great. He who hates reproof is stupid. I mean, seriously, you're only hurting yourself. How stupid are you going to get? God is disciplining you for your growth. He's disciplining you for your, um, for your blessing. The reproof is to, to correct you so that you don't venture down that wrong path. All right. Ignoring God's wisdom carries a consequence that cannot be ignored. Point E. Ignoring God's wisdom carries a consequence that cannot be ignored. There's only so much that you can ignore. Only so much you can stick your head in the sand and act like it doesn't exist or it's not there. Okay? Not listening, not listening, not listening. You can ignore what he says, but then how are you going to ignore what he does? How are you going to ignore the reality of his hand in your life, the reality of his discipline and the judgment you come under? In verses 26 through uh, 32, there's some consequences that cannot be ignored, including God laughing at you for the judgment you're under. Including the distress and the anguish, the dread and the calamity, the uh, unanswered prayers as a consequence of your carnality. I'm not going to ignore that, okay? It's remarkable, all the atheists I ever meet, they, they, they ignore God, they act like there is no God, but they're sure mad at the God they don't believe in. They're, they're sure, uh, you know, when I say a prayer and they leave the room, they run away out of the room, you know, they don't want to hear a prayer being spoken. You know, I'm in a room with someone that's about to physically die and their son is in the room and he doesn't even want to hear me praying for, for his mom. Oh, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, let me leave the room. And he runs out into the hallway in the hospital. Really? You know, I mean, I don't believe in the Easter Bunny, but I'm not offended when somebody talks about him, or I'd, I don't leave the room or run if I see a commercial or something. It doesn't bug me. Why do you have such hatred for what you say doesn't exist? <laughs> you can only ignore so much. And there are some things that are unignorable. And that's what we see here. He says, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. Mocking. 
Sanctified mocking from the Creator God of the universe. Mocking. There's taunts that we see in um, Isaiah, for example. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, you can ignore that like you ignored the teaching, you ignored the voice, you ignored the hand, you ignored the, the uh, counsel, you neglected the counsel. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. They had a chance. They said no. They're facing the consequences. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. They, uh, they reaped this fruit. They're going to eat this fruit. Okay, It's like uh, we reap what we sow. We, uh, you made your bed, you're going to lie in it. You've got different idioms depending on your <laughs> culture and, and uh, um, so forth. They shall eat the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. You know, if you think about the, the imagery of this was in the wilderness generation and they grumbled about the manna and he gave them so much quail, it was rotting in their teeth. Gave them so much quail, is that what you want to eat? Is that what you want to eat? And they ate so much. And remember that story? Well, they're going to eat of this fruit. They're going to be so satiated with it. Satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them. Now God's got a provision for the pethy. The, the provision for the naive and the provision is his wisdom so that they grow beyond that pethy. But for this crowd that loves it, that wants to join with the scoffers and the fools, they're going to they're gonna pay the price for that. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. The complacency of the fools will destroy them. The waywardness of the naive will kill them. But he who listens to me He who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. Notice it doesn't do away with evil. It doesn't defeat evil. It doesn't uh, transform this world into some rainbow and Skittles kind of utopia, imaginary whatever. No. But in the midst of all the evil, in the midst of all the darkness, in the midst of anything, we're secure. We're stable. We're at peace. We live securely. And I love that. Absolutely love that. Listen to me. He who listens to me shall live securely. So, ignoring God's wisdom carries a consequence that cannot be ignored. First of all, mocking laughter from heaven. Mocking laughter from heaven against his enemies. (laughs) You didn't want to hear his reproof. Now listen to his laughter. Pretend like you didn't hear that. Mocking laughter from heaven against his enemies. A couple of psalms that speak of this. Psalm 2, 4, Psalm 37 and verse 13. And this is an aspect too that I think we really have to tremble. We have to be cautious with. There are dimensions that God has the capacity to handle that we don't. Such as jealousy, vengeance, mocking laughter. I think we have to be very cautious if we attempt in our, in our uh, perspective to try to do something like this ourselves, uh, we probably don't have the capacity to do that. If I was to try to mock in a mocking laughter, 
um, I would probably fa- fail because I would there'd be just too much of my carnality coming through. My mocking uh, laughter would be uh, a, a carnal glee at seeing somebody's downfall, and I, I don't know that I could. I could do a mocking laughter like God does His mocking laughter. Same thing with a vengeance. God has vengeance, and we're told, no, don't do that. Leave, leave vengeance in the hands of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. He wraps Himself with vengeance as a garment, and when He describes our garments, vengeance is never part of that. We have breastplate of righteousness, we've got robes of righteousness, we've got a helmet of salvation, we've got, there's a lot of things we're dressed with, but vengeance as a garment is limited to Christ Himself. We're never, that's never, we're never dressed with that. And I suspect that mocking laughter is, is, is like that. I think mocking laughter is, is, is a component of that vengeance that we don't really have the capacity to, uh, to engage in, if that makes any sense. All right, um, here it is. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. And, and what's there to laugh at in that circumstance? What's there to mock in that circumstance? Just the recognition of how sad it is. We, sometimes we laugh not because it's funny. We laugh because it's sad. We laugh because, um, look at the different laughter in Abraham and Isaac, uh, Abraham and Sarah laughing about the birth of Isaac. And uh, she, la- she laughed apart from faith. He laughed in faith. And they gave him the name Isaac, which means laughter. Well, here's God laughing at calamity and mocking and the, and the laughter it can be just in the, the irony of the situation. Can you believe that? Can you believe how ironic it is that they're in this circumstance when it was so totally unnecessary? So completely and totally unnecessary? All right. Uh, Psalm 2 and verse 4 and then Psalm 37 and verse 13. Let's look at these. Because this one gets quoted... In uh, Peter uses this in some of his early sermons in the book of Acts. Just like when he uses Joel 2. He's talking about things that are ultimately going to have their fulfillment in the millennium. But he uses it as an illustration. And I think people make the same mistake with Acts 2, or with uh, Joel 2 that they make with Psalm 2. Not church fulfillment, it's millennial fulfillment. Uh, Psalm 2 says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. So it's a rebellion against God the Father and God the Son. It's an Antichrist rebellion against God the Father and God the Son. Saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The fetters and the cords... All right. And this is not a first advent in its fulfillment, although Peter, like I say, does make use of it in his sermon. Ultimately speaking, he did not put them under bondage in first advent. He didn't conquer them in first advent. He didn't subject the world to the rule of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not take his seat on the throne of David in the first advent. But he will do so at second advent. He will do so in the millennium. In the millennium, you will have nations of the earth chafing at the bonds that they will be under wanting to tear their fetters apart and cast away the cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. 
All right, so we have the picture of what the millennial failure is going to be all about. For a thousand years, Jesus Christ will be seated on the throne of David and he'll be ruling from Jerusalem. And kings of the earth will have to come and, and, and approach him every year. Kings of the earth and the rulers of the earth will be expected to arrive in Jerusalem every year. The Feast of Tabernacles are expected to come every year. They have to worship and when they don't, they get their rain turned off for the following year. And they're going to chafe at it. They're going to um, grumble. They're going to devise a vain thing. They're going to be uh, furious at having to submit to Jesus Christ on his throne. And they're going to say, let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. We want a better king than what we've got. And they're going to start to demand Satan to be released out of the abyss. They're going to demand his release. They're going to march on Jerusalem in a great human rights protest, demanding Satan's release, demanding Jesus Christ and his abdication. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them as if they can succeed in their rebellion, as if they can succeed in thwarting his eternal purpose. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, he says, you can devise what you want to devise, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God says, you can demand and protest all you want, but my king is on his throne. (laughs) I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Jesus Christ is seated and installed as king. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. Take some time this week and pray about that verse. Consider that verse, all right? Because in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, he rules as the son of David on the throne of David. And he has boundaries that are represented by the land grant given to Abraham from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. He's got a boundary over his nation beyond which are the Gentile nations and their boundaries and their territories. All right? In the millennial kingdom, he is the son of David seated on the throne of David. But there is greater territory yet to be granted. And he says, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. This is why after the millennium and the new heavens and on the new earth, Jesus Christ is going to reign Everywhere, Jesus Christ will reign not just the Son of David, but as the Son of Man. Jesus Christ will have the total dominion over all humanity, Jew and Gentile alike. As promised there in verse 8. It won't be the boundaries from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates. It'll be the ends of the earth. As not only does He reign as the Son of David, but as the Son of Man over all humanity. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The millennium will take discipline. It won't be a fun reign. It won't be an easy reign. It's not going to be you know, a flowery cakewalk for Jesus Christ. Every day will require that rod of iron. Every day will require discipline upon the unruly, upon the folks that are conspiring against Him, devising their vain thing. Which is why the millennium ends in failure. At the end of the thousand years, what do we find out? Join me if you would. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. 
We'll show you what a laughing matter this is, because he who sits in the heavens laughs. And watch what he does in, in his laughter. All right. The first part of these verses is um, the victory of Jesus at Armageddon. And um, at the end of chapter 19, you got the, the destruction of the uh, Antichrist and his armies. And then uh, beginning of chapter 20, an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So the millennium is going to start off in good shape. <laughs> Satan gets bound for the thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. See, these nations that are in uproar are in uproar based on their own rebellion, not under Satan. He's not deceiving them. He's bound, but they want him out. Until the thousand years were completed, after these things, he must be released for a short time. It's a must be. It's a have to in the plan of God. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them. Write your name in there. You're a part of that they in verse 4. The bride of Christ is seated with Christ. We will judge the world with Christ. Judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded and so forth. Let me skip on down. They come to life. They reign for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. All right. So what do we see here? Verse 2, 1,000 years. Verse 3, 1,000 years. Verse 4, 1,000 years. Verse 5, 1,000 years. Verse 6, 1,000 years. Wow. For a term that never showed up even one time in the Old Testament, it's sure showing up an awful lot right here. 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years. Verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. This millennium must be a pretty big deal. Until I get to verse 7. When the thousand years are completed. Oh, wait a minute. Where'd it go? <laughs> Boy, that just flew by faster than anything. How'd that go by so fast? That just flew on by. If anyone ever asks you, where's the millennium in the book of Revelation? Just tell them it's in between verse 6 and verse 7 of Revelation chapter 20. It's right there in between those two verses. You've got to kind of read between the lines because when you get to verse 7, it's over. It's over. Verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 are all talking about it's coming up, it's coming up, it's coming up. Verse 7, it's gone. It's over and done with. And I love that. To me, this helps to put the millennium in perspective. The millennium is not the eternal plan of God. The millennium is simply the, 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 the day of the Lord. A, a thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. It's simply a day. There's the day of his conquest. There's the day of his exaltation. But it will give away, it will give way to the new heavens and new earth after the thousand years. See, growing up, I used to think the millennium was everything. Man, millennium this, millennium that, millennium, millennium. Later, I've realized, wait a minute, the millennium is just, it's just a day. And it's, it's actually kind of an unpleasant day as he rules with a rod of iron. It's a day that's going to end in revolt. What we should be looking for is the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Oh, how about that? That's what Second Peter says. According to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Quit looking for the millennium. Look for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, it's over. Wow, look at that, it's over. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which he hasn't been able to do for a thousand years. But guess what? They are ripe and ready. 
He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them, what does it say? Does it say he scrapes together a bare minimum? He scrapes together one or two malcontents. That everyone's so happy after a thousand years of perfect environment, perfect government, perfect righteousness, that he gets out of prison and everybody just laughs at him and says, oh, who wants you? No. He gathers them together for the non-militarized war and the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Man. They've been waiting for this. They've been wanting this. They've been working for this. They've been hoping for this. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. I think this is vital. Where does the judgment come from? Jesus doesn't destroy this rebellion. It comes from heaven. Okay? Because he who sits in the heavens laughs. They came up on the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. God the Father judges on behalf of His Son. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. Notice that. They're still there in verse 10. They were thrown into the uh, lake of fire back way back in chapter 19, 1920. They were thrown alive into the lake of fire. And from 1920 to 2010, a thousand years has gone by and they're still there. If anyone tries to tell you that annihilation is... is uh, No, there's no annihilation in the lake of fire. It is eternal destruction in the lake of fire. They're still there a thousand years later, tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. So the destruction of the heavens and the earth by fire and now the great white throne and the new heavens and the new earth in chapter 21. For the first heaven and first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. Now we've got the new heavens and new earth. Now we have, as Jesus, as the Father says in Psalm 2, ask of me and I will surely give you the ends of the earth as your inheritance. All right. The other laughter that we have in Psalms is Psalm 37.13. Psalm 37.13. More laughter. Verse um, 7, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Just walk in the light. Don't worry if the wicked guy is prospering. You think he's prospering. He's not. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place. He will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. But the Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the needy, the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Well, it's not going to (laughs) work. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Live by the sword, die by the sword. The meek shall inherit the earth. I think this whole psalm is encapsulated in the, in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. 
All right, mocking laughter from heaven against his enemies. The sad thing is, though, as we look at this, in Proverbs 1, his enemies shouldn't be the, the, the children who should be listening to wisdom. But see, when you put yourself at enmity with God, when you reject his wisdom, when you would reject his word, friendship with the world is enmity, is hostility against God. He laughs at his enemies. He shouldn't be laughing at you, but you're rejecting wisdom, so he's laughing at you. And just the fact that he's laughing at you ought to wake you up to say, ooh, wait a minute, why is he laughing at me? Second consequence that cannot be ignored, unanswered prayers. Unanswered prayers from the God who can hear but does not hear. You've chosen not to hear, he's chosen not to hear. How about that? (laughs) Okay, unanswered prayers from the God who can hear but does not hear. We saw this not too long ago in Isaiah chapter 1. About four weeks ago, five weeks ago. We saw this in Isaiah chapter 1. Your iniquities have created a barrier between you and God. Wash your hands. Cleanse your heart, you double-minded. All right? He's not going to hear as long as you're carnal. The only thing he's waiting to hear is your confession. Father, (laughs) Father, I have sinned. I'm not worthy to be considered your son. Okay? Confess. No, you're not worthy to be my son, but I've made you worthy to be my son because Jesus Christ is my son and you have his worthiness imputed to your account. All he's waiting to hear is confession. All right, Proverbs 1.28, they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. See, what happened to seeking you shall find, asking you shall receive, knocking it shall be opened unto you. Well, that, uh, that gets broken when you're in carnality. That just doesn't work. He's waiting for you to confess, to be restored to fellowship, return to the light. Then, uh, yeah, then you can call him, then you can seek him, then you can find him, you bet. But first of all, you've got to get right. You've got you to confess. If you want more on that, then I recommend the Sunday night series at 6 o'clock as uh, Dan Cross taking us through 1 John. Uh, Judges 10, verse 14, real quickly, running out of time. Judges 10. Here's one we don't turn to as often. The book of Judges. Now I've got a sticky page. There it is. Okay. <laughs> you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. You abandoned me to go serve Molech or one of those guys? All right, fine. Pray, pray to them. See if they get you out of this. Anyway, back to verse 10. The sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Ammonites, the sons of Ammon, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites? Deliver you from all of them who oppressed you. You cried out to me, I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Go serve those gods. Go cry to them. You've chosen them. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. All right, so the sons of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. All right, that's what he wants. He wants their confession. We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods. This is why you isolate from evil. This is why you confess your sins. This is why you forsake sin and forsake, or confess and forsake. They put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he could uh, bear the misery of Israel no longer. All right, there's a marvelous pattern for it there. Finally, eating their own fruit. 
Or as it says in Galatians 6, you reap what you sow. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Proverbs 1, 31. They shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. Proverbs 22, 8. He who sows iniquity will reap vanity, and the rod of his fury will perish. You know, the sooner we learn this lesson, (laughs) the better. The longer we refuse to learn this lesson, the more is going to be administered to us. The uh, life is about decisions and consequences. That's that's life, okay? Life is about choices and consequences, decisions and consequences. That's a part of being a, 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 a human being or an angel, the moral realm of creation. The moral realm of creation is the volitional realm of creation, angels and humans with volitional capacity to uh, align positively with the will of God in obedience or to align negatively in the will of God in carnality and in disobedience. And whichever way our volition is aligned and expressed, we face consequences. We make choices, we face consequences. We reap what we sow, we eat our own fruit. We make our own bed and lie in it. Okay? Or pick your idiom. I think the Ukrainians have a, a similar one. I don't remember what it was now. It's goofy, but that's what they have, and they've used it. Finally, the chapter begins, or closes as it opened. This passage closes as it opened, the imperative to listen. Subpoint D in the final point from Proverbs chapter 1. This passage closes as it opened. In verse 8 it says, Hear, hear my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. It began with the imperative to shama, the imperative to hear. And this is how it closes. He who hears, he who listens, he who shamat, listens to me, shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. He that has an ear, let him hear. If you're listening to the voice of your shepherd, you know the voice of your shepherd, you're listening, listen. He who listens shall live securely and be at ease from the dread of evil. What are you going to sweat? hey, you know what? I can hear my shepherd's voice. Is there a lion around? Is there a bear around? Is there a wolf around? Is there, who cares? I can hear my shepherd's voice. My shepherd's within earshot. I'm not worried about the lion or the bear or any of that. He'll take care of that. I'm listening to him. If you can hear your shepherd's voice, you can live securely and be at ease from the dread of evil. All right, well, Lord willing, rapture pending. We've uh, one chapter down, 30 more to go, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to be here long enough to teach all of 31 chapters of Proverbs, but if you know the church age lingers, if God is merciful enough and gracious enough to lengthen the period of the church, then uh, okay, we'll keep doing it. Proverbs chapter 2, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. Thank you, Father, for truth. Thank you for the blessings of this book. And Father, uh, uh, for the longest time, I couldn't imagine what in the world was ever going to follow Life of Christ. But Father, uh, because that was such a special series and such a powerful um, blessing. Uh, But but now, Father, I'm starting to see that uh, this too is uh, going to be a blessing, Father. Every chapter ahead, every class ahead, Father, Proverbs is going to transform me 
It's going to transform each one of us here. It's going to transform this church. And uh, now I'm, I'm just coming to love this more and more and starting to wonder, why didn't I teach Proverbs 20 years ago, Father? This is, uh, this is going to be fun. And so, Father, um, we're turning to you. We're making our ear attentive to wisdom. And we're asking, Father, that you would continue to bless uh, each of these students here. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.